You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. We serve an amazing God. We serve a wonderful God. And God has many characteristics and attributes, and there's many characteristics that make God God. And though you and I, we were created in the image of God, we're God's image bearers here on earth, we do not possess those characteristics that make God God. For instance, God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And we might be well acquainted with some know-it-alls, but no one is all-knowing. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He's omnibenevolent. He's all-love. And we could go on and on. There's many characteristics of God that make God God. And tonight I'd like to look at several of God's characteristics and then see how those can apply to our everyday Christian lives. Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God, and I pray that right now I do my very best to get you lifted up and exalted and magnified and glorified. May all eyes be upon you, and may you be pleased with everything that is said tonight. In your name we do pray. Amen. I often tell the college students that the more we know about God, the better and easier it is to love him and to serve him and to worship him and to obey him. And this is a lifelong endeavor. This is a lifelong pursuit to study this blessed old book, to devour it, and to truly know who God is. Let's begin tonight with looking at the fact that God is monotheistic. Amen. There's only one God. Amen. And church, tonight, if polytheism were true, if there were multiple gods, and if henotheism were true, if these gods were ranked in a specific order, identifying one as supreme as the number one God. If that were true and we served the number one God, that would be incredible and awesome within itself to be able to say that you and I serve the number one God. But it goes beyond that. Not only do we serve the supreme God, we serve the only true living God. There's only one God. I like what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. We call this the true Lord's Prayer because we find an intimate conversation between the Father and the Son. And in John 17, Jesus prays for us. How wonderful to think that Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for the believer, and he's talking to God, and he prayed this. He said, Lord, it's my prayer that the believer, they might know thee, the only true God. And that was Jesus' prayer for us, that you and I might know God the Father, the only true God. John 3.16 is sort of the verse that all Christians sort of claim, if you will. No matter what denomination, we all sort of claim John 3.16. We say this is the greatest verse because it contains everything that is great. Undoubtedly, it's the first verse that many of us memorize. And I'm sure most of us tonight could stand and quote from memory John 3.16. It's our go-to verse, if you will. But for the Jew, they have a John 3.16, if you will. 
they have a verse that they claim, and no matter what denomination of Judaism, they all sort of claim this verse, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This verse is so important to the Jew that they've even given it a name, and they call it the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word that means here, and it's for the first word of this particular verse. So let's take a look at the Shema real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This verse clearly teaches and proclaims the fact that there's only one God, monotheism. And the fact that there's only one God is one of the key distinguishing factors between the God of the Old Testament and the gods of the ancient Near Eastern religions. There's only one God. What is God's name? We know that Islam, they serve Allah, but that's not the name of the God that you and I serve. We know Hindus, they serve Brahman and Vishnu and Shiva and others. That is not the name of the God that you and I serve. What is God's name? Well, it turns out that God's name is ineffable. God's name is comprised of four Hebrew letters. They're all consonants. There's no vowels in Hebrew. And no one knows for sure how to pronounce God's name. Because of Exodus 20, the third commandment, which teaches us, thou shalt not take God's name in vain. And the Jews, they were not exactly sure what that meant. And so they'd rather be safe than sorry. So they decided that they would never say God's name. And so since no one ever said God's name, we have no idea how to say God's name. We serve an incredible, wonderful, amazing God. His name is ineffable. Perhaps we're unworthy to even know how to pronounce God's name. So first of all, we see that there's only one God, monotheism. We're not really sure how to pronounce God's name. Maybe it's Jehovah, maybe it's Yahweh, maybe it's something else. It's ineffable. And secondly, I see that God is transcendent and imminent. And one of the key distinguishing factors between the Christian God and the gods of other world religions is the fact that our God is both transcendent and imminent. As a matter of fact, other world religions, they say, well, wait a minute, that's impossible. The two are incompatible. There's no way that God can be transcendent and imminent at the same time. But my Bible declares that the God that you and I serve, for with God nothing shall be impossible. So what do we mean by this? Well, let's begin with the word transcendent. Transcendent means that God has no limitations. God is not limited by his creation. He exists above and beyond his creation. God created space. He's not limited by space. God created time. He's not limited by time. God is transcendent. He has no limitations. He exists above and beyond his creation. But the Bible also teaches us at the same time that only is God transcendent, he's imminent. What does that mean? Imminent means God can be found everywhere in his creation. God infuses his creation. God interacts with his creation. Now, what is God infused creation and interact with creation? Because God desires to have a relationship with his creation. So God, on the one hand, is transcendent, He's above and beyond his creation, but at the same time infuses that creation and can be found everywhere in that creation as he desires to have a relationship with us. Please take your Bibles and let's go to Isaiah chapter 57. 
Isaiah 57 is a wonderful verse that teaches us that God is both transcendent and imminent at the same time. Isaiah chapter 57, and let's read verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one. See, God is high, he's lofty, he's exalted. He is above and beyond space. He's not limited by space. Then it says that inhabiteth eternity. Once again, God is not bound or limited by time. He's high, he's exalted, he's lofty, he's eternal, whose name is holy. Let me just stop there. Aren't you glad that God's holy? Could you imagine God with all of his power, all of his authority, his control, his sovereignty? Could you imagine God with all of this power if he was a cruel, wicked, abusive God? I'm glad God is absolutely, perfectly holy. But then God says, I dwell in the high and holy place. That's transcendency. But then notice, with him also, that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Amen. So not only is God high and exalted and lofty, he inhabits eternity, but he also dwells with man. He's transcendent and imminent at the same time. God is incomprehensible because he's transcendent, but God is knowable because he's imminent. Amen. Now, how do we know about God? Well, we know about God because of this book right here. God in his sovereignty created language for the purpose of communicating to man. God inspired approximately 40 men to write 66 books, and these books teach us about God. And God did all of that. He went through all that time and effort and work and put forth all those resources because he wants us to know him, because he desires to have a relationship with us. Can you imagine, Christian, if we were to say, God, I know that you want us to know you. I know that you put forth all of this effort, but I'm too busy to study this book and to read this book and to truly know you. I've got more important things to do. May that never be said about you or me. Now, God, as he reveals himself to us in this book, we know that God is not going to oppose this book. He's not going to contradict this book. The self-revelation of himself is trustworthy, and we know that God limits himself to the revelation of himself in this book. Now, of course, this book is not all-inclusive. This book doesn't teach us everything there is to know about God, but it teaches us everything that God wants us to know about him. But God has limited himself to the revelation of himself in this book. And some people say, well, wait a minute. If God has a limitation, doesn't that mean he's no longer transcendent? Because transcendent means he has no limitations. But that's an external force acting upon God. This is a self-imposed limitation that God has placed upon himself because he wants us to know him. He wants to be knowable. He wants to have a relationship with him. And God says, whatever I reveal about myself, about myself in this book, it's trustworthy. Amen. God is, number one, monotheistic. There's only one God. His name is ineffable. And God, number two, is both transcendent and imminent at the same time. Number three, God is a covenantal God. God's a covenantal God. God makes covenants with man. And why does God make covenants with man? Because once again, this is a tool 
This is an instrument that God uses to teach man about himself. God wants man to know that he is trustworthy, that he's faithful, that he keeps his promises, and he makes covenants with man to teach man that he is faithful and keeps his promises. We find many covenants in the Old Testament. Most of them are unilateral. They're one-sided. And it's God who obligates himself to keep the conditions of the covenant. Now, church, I want you to think about this. An almighty, all-powerful, transcendent, sovereign God obligates himself to keep the conditions of the covenants that he makes with man because he wants man to know him because he wants to have a relationship with man. Take our Bibles, go to 2 Chronicles chapter 21. 2 Chronicles chapter 21, let's take a look at one of these covenants that God makes with man. Here we find the Davidic covenant, covenant that God makes with David, 2 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 7. The Bible says, Howbeit the Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he made with David. And as he promised to give a light to him and to his sons forever. God says, no matter what happens, I am going to fulfill the conditions of the covenant. I am going to fulfill and keep my promise. So we see God is monotheistic. There's only one God. His name is ineffable. We see God is transcendent and imminent at the same time. And number three, we see that God is a covenantal God. Well, the existence of these three characteristics or attributes of God give us insight into the fundamental nature of Old Testament theology. The sine qua non, if you will, the main essential component of Old Testament theology. Everything centers around this is simply this. The main component of Old Testament theology is that God desires to have a relationship with man. What an amazing thought. We have to agree with David when he said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? I have no idea why God will look down from the splendor of heaven from his throne and God will look at a Sean Jackson and say, I desire to have a relationship with Sean Jackson. But Brother Jackson, aren't you glad that he does? Amen. Don't even get me started on Brother Noel. <laughs> what a God you and I serve. God desires to have a relationship with man, but there's a problem. There's a great goal fix, if you will, between God and man. There's this great gap between God and man. And so in order to bridge the gap, God created the priesthood. Well, what is a priest? Well, a priest is someone who intercedes on behalf of God and man. A priest is someone who brings God and man together. A priest is someone who teaches man about God. And I'm sure we're all well acquainted with the Old Testament priesthood. Now, if we wanted to get scholarly and fancy and sound very intellectual, we would talk about sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism is the belief and methods and practices of the priesthood. But we know about Aaron and his sons, the high priest, and we know about the tribe of Levi. But we also see that God 
and his sovereignty made the entire nation of Israel a priesthood. Let's take our Bibles, go to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Here we see God having a conversation with Moses. And God is instructing Moses with some information about the nation of Israel, the children of Israel. Exodus chapter 19, notice verse 5. God says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And he said about the nation of Israel, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. So every single Israelite in the eyes of God was a priest. Every single Israelite had the duty, the responsibility to represent God before man, to teach man about God. And God created the nation of Israel. He chose the nation of Israel and gave them the special status, the special responsibility, the special duty to be a kingdom of priests and to represent him before the other nations. Now, God did not select the nation of Israel because he loved that nation more than the other nations. God didn't select the nation of Israel because they were his favorites. God gave them this special status because God wants all nations to know him. And that was God's tool in the Old Testament and God's instrument in the Old Testament to teach the nations about him because he desires to have a relationship with man. Nation of Israel... They were not to be a people unto themselves. They were not to take this special status and lord it over the other nations and pay no attention to the rest of the world, but rather they were to represent God to the rest of the world and attempt to bring the rest of the world to him. But of course, we know that there was a priesthood within the priesthood because the nation of Israel needed someone to represent them before God. The nation of Israel needed someone to teach them about God, so God raised up Aaron and his sons in the tribe of Levi. Yeah, that's right. You say, well, that's wonderful, Brother Oxendine, but we no longer live in the Old Testament, and we're not Israelites, so how does this apply to me? Well, now that we've looked at Old Testament theology, now let's take a look at New Testament theology. What is God's plan under the new covenant that you and I live under? Let's take our Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. So in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenants, God's tool and instrument that he utilized to teach the nations about him was the nation of Israel. And now we understand that God's uh, program with the nation of Israel has been put on hold. It's going to resume during the tribulation period. God's attention is now turned to the Gentile to the Christian believer, to you and I. So 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to take a look at verse 1 to make sure we understand who the addressee is for this epistle. Who is Peter writing this letter to? 
Well, it says, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout, and he lists all of these Gentile cities of Asia Minor. But notice, he's writing his letter, his epistle, to the strangers who are scattered. And sometimes people say, well, I think that's Jews of the diaspora, Jews of the dispersion, but that's not true. First of all, we can look, Peter uses this particular word elsewhere in his epistle, and it's clear that he's talking to the believer, you and I. Why does he call us strangers? Because stranger means someone that's a foreigner, someone that is temporary abiding. Perhaps a song might do well to illustrate why Peter calls us strangers. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Will somebody please tell Brother Galvan to add me to the staff men singing group? I've asked, I've begged, I've pleaded to no avail. This world is not our home. We're strangers. We're foreigners. This is just a temporary abode for us. So now that we understand that Peter is addressing and writing to the Christian, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And as we read this verse, you'll notice that Peter is going to use a lot of the same terminology that we found in Exodus 19 that was applicable to the nation of Israel, and he's now going to apply it to the church, not the building, but the body of believers, you and I. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says about us, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Each and every born-again believer is considered a priest in the eyes of God. We're a royal priesthood because we serve the King of Kings a holy nation, a peculiar people. And by the way, peculiar doesn't mean weird or strange or different. It means a purchased possession. That is what the word peculiar means. We are God's special treasure, a purchased people, because we've been bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. Church, isn't it wonderful to think that God loves us so much that He purchased us, that He wants us? We're considered his prized possession, if you will. And so about you and I, we're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason God made you and I a priest is that we might show forth his praises. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. We all have direct access to God the Father, and we all have the responsibility to represent God before man, to teach man about God. It's not simply pastor's responsibility or the assistant pastor or those in full-time Christian ministry. Every born-again believer has that duty, that task, that responsibility to be a priest, to teach man about God. And each and every one of us, we will stand before God one day and give an account for how well we accomplish our task, our duty, our purpose, our responsibility. Church, let me encourage you to analyze your lives. How are you doing with this task, this responsibility, this job title of being a priest? 
We can accomplish this directly by going soul winning, but we can also accomplish this indirectly by singing in the choir, by being an usher, by driving a bus, by teaching Sunday school. We all have that responsibility, that duty, that task, that purpose of teaching man about God. Primary purpose of my message tonight is not the what. And the what is the fact that we're all priests. We all have the responsibility to represent God before man. But really, my primary focus tonight is the why. Why has God made us all priests? Because, my friends, New Testament theology is the exact same as Old Testament theology. In the Old Testament, we see God desires to have a relationship with man. And God, in order to fulfill that desire, he uses as an instrument, as a tool, the nation of Israel. But today, God still has that desire. And the sine qua non, the main essential component of New Testament theology is the same as the Old Testament. God desires to have a relationship with man. What an incredible God that you and I serve. I don't understand why God loves us so much, but he does. And today, God utilizes the church to fulfill that function. I serve God, perhaps, for rewards and treasures in heaven. I think that's a proper motive. After all, in Matthew 6, Jesus said, commands us to lay not up for ourselves treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. I think that's a proper motive. But I think a better motive tonight is that you and I should serve him because of our love for him. Amen. We love him because he first loved us. God desires to have a relationship with us. And God comes knocking on our door. I remember as a 12-year-old boy, I had no care for God, no thought of God. But God sent two ladies to knock on my door to invite me to ride a big yellow bus to Sunday school. And a few days later, God had my aunt strike up a conversation with me about the end times. You know what's interesting, Pastor? Before that day, my aunt never one time ever talked to me about anything spiritual. And after that time, not one time has my aunt ever mentioned anything spiritual to me. Just that one time, that was a divine appointment by God because he loves me, because he desires to have a relationship with me. And it's out of that love that I hope that I serve him. It's out of that love that I hope that I'll do more for him. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.